Welcome to Awaken to Grace. I'm Chad Roberts, and today we began a brand new series called Behold, a Study of Angels. You know, angels were so prevalent in the birth of Christ, and we are going to trace that throughout Scripture through this uh, study. Well, today we're going to start with an older man named Zachariah and his wife named Elizabeth. And what we are going to see is when the angel Gabriel announces that they are going to have a son in their old age, well, what it did is it revealed the unbelief and the doubt in Zechariah's heart. Well, Scripture says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and they were blameless before God. And the point of today, the point of this sermon is that you and I can be born again. We can be right righteous before God, and yet unbelief be in our life, doubt be in our heart. We're going to learn many things from God's Word today. I'm glad you're listening to this episode of Awakened to Grace. Well, today we're going to be introduced to a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah is going to have an encounter with angels. And you know, it's interesting because Luke 23 times is going to mention angels in his gospel. But listen, he writes about many angels throughout the entire book of Acts. It was the angel of the Lord that struck down and killed King Herod. It was an angel of God that rescued Peter out of prison. What a story that is in Acts chapter 12. It was an angel that appeared to Paul when he was going to be shipwrecked and assured him that God was with him and was going to spare not only his life, but the lives of everyone on board. You know what is so interesting to me as I've studied angels now, what is so interesting to me is that the temptation for you and I is to become infatuated to become so curious and so interested in the reality of angels that if you and I are not careful, we'll kind of get out of balance in our thinking of it. Well, do you know what fascinates me about angels in the Bible? Is that there is not one section of the scriptures solely dedicated to the teaching of angels. Did you know that? There's not one chapter in the Bible that, is te- that tells us all that we need to know about angels. There's not even a chunk of Scripture that tells us what we would love to know about angels. But yet, we meet the first angel in the Garden of Eden. Remember, we were there a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 3. It was a cherubim that God put to guard the pathway to the tree of the, of the life in the Garden of Eden. And yet we meet angels in the last chapter of the Bible, chapter 22. The Bible is prevalent with angels. All the way from Genesis to Revelation. You look at the life of Daniel. You look at the life of Ezekiel. You look at the life of Isaiah. You look at all of these tremendous stories throughout the Old Testament. And angels are laced and weaved in and out and throughout the entire Old Covenant. Then you come to the New Testament and oh my goodness, angels are everywhere. 
You come to the birth of Christ and they're so involved in the birth of Christ. They're so involved in the ministry of Christ. They were involved in strengthening him and ministering to him in his time of temptation. They were with him through his miracles and his earthly ministry. They had such a dominant role in his resurrection. They strengthened him in the garden of Gethsemane. There's only one point in the life of Christ where we don't see angels. And you know where it was? On the cross. Because he had to do that alone. Angels are throughout all of church history. And they're throughout the entire book of Acts. They're throughout the epistles. And where are angels the most dominant in all of scripture? The book of Revelation. What did we say through our study? We encountered angels 60 times in the 22 chapters of Revelation. And the book contains 80 references to angels. And we met them 60 times. 234 times the Bible mentions good angels. 278 times the Bible speaks of God as the Lord of hosts or the Lord over the, over the armies of heaven. What is that, my friends? That is the angelic host. Isn't that fascinating? Over 500 references to angels in the Bible. But here's what I want you to understand today. While there are 500 references to angels in the Bible, there is not one chapter and not one large section of scripture dedicated to them. Why would you suppose that is? I think the reason why is because in God's kingdom, in God's universe, in God's order, in God's creation, you know what? Angels are quite commonplace. They're weaved in and out of his story. They're part of the kingdom of God. They're part of the scriptures. And you know what, my friends? I believe they're part of our lives as well. We should not be infatuated with angels. We should not be so intrigued that we pray to angels or that we worship angels. You remember John, the apostle, in the book of Revelation, twice he fell down to worship the angel. And do you remember what the angel did? Sir, you must not do that. What did he say in chapter 22? The angel said, no, John. He said, I am a fellow servant with you and those who believe in Jesus. Huh. Angels are fellow servants. They're not to be prayed to. They are not to be worshipped. They are not to be fascinated on. No, or infatuated with. There's just... They're part of the story. And you know what? I think as we go throughout our study, I think you'll find they're part of your story too. And they're active in your life. What is, what is an angel's responsibility? Go with me before we lay out our text. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. Of all scriptures that tell us about angels, Hebrews 1.14 is perhaps the most definitive. And in Hebrews 1.14, we see, number one, the essence of angels. And we see, number two, the responsibility of angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says, 
Are they not all ministering spirits? So what are angels? They are supernatural creations of God. Just as we are a creation of God, angels are a creation of God. And see, you must understand, my friends, when a loved one passes away, they do not become an angel. When a baby passes away or a miscarriage or something like that, that baby does not become an angel. That's a false teaching. Angels were created before humanity was created. We see, that's why we see angels before the Garden of Eden, involved in the Garden of Eden. They were created, we believe, before humanity was created. And they're a higher order because Scripture says that when Christ became a man, he became a little lower than the angels. He took on a robe of flesh. Jesus taught us in Matthew that angels do not marry, and he taught us in Matthew that angels never die. They are eternal. Why? Because they're not physical beings. They are spirits. They are spiritual beings. They are an order of God's creation. And I believe they were created before humanity. Now, what is their purpose? Well, their essence, are they not all spirits, ministering spirits? And then what's the next part of the verse? Sent from God. (laughs) Their purpose is to do the plans and the purposes and to accomplish the will of God. Keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 and go over for a moment to Psalms 103 verses 20 and 21. Say, my goodness, you're having me turn a lot today, Chad. Psalms 103, verse 20 and 21, what does it say? David calls angels, O mighty ones of God, I love that, who performs God's word. Verse 21, who accomplishes or does the will of God. What is the role of an angel? What is his responsibility? Angels perform the will of God. Angels do the task of God. Angels accomplish the word of God. You know what that means, my friends? That means that God sends them on purpose in the earth. And just as there were angelic activities in the Old Testament, just like there were angelic activities throughout the early church, my friends, there are angelic activities today in our day that we are living. Some of you, perhaps you have not yet heard, and I would encourage you to go on our free mobile app, Awakened to Grace, or on our website, awakentograce.com, in the sermons folder, There's a folder called Rescued, and it's the story. My mom, it is her story of how when she was pregnant with me, she was literally kidnapped at knife point. And do you know, my friends, that an angel of God rescued her and me? If you haven't heard it, you should go listen to it. It's called Rescued. Joy Bollinger, who is a wonderful friend, and her late husband was a mighty man of prayer and a deacon here in our church, and 
he transitioned to glory back in April. And Joy has recently relocated back to Florida after Michael's passing. But before she left, we were able to record a podcast with her that we're going to release next week. And it's called The Angel Who Lived Upstairs. And it's a story of how an angel rescued Joy. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Why do I emphasize this? Because look back again at Hebrews 1.14. What is the essence of angels? Well, they're ministering spirits. What is their job? They are sent from God to do what? Psalms 103 verses 20 and 21. They perform the word of God. They accomplish the will of God. And what, do, what are they involved in? Go back to Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out from God for what purpose? For those who will inherit eternal life. <laughs> you know what that means, my friends? That means our lives are filled with angelic activity, whether you ever see it or not. Our lives are filled with angelic protection. Does everyone have a guardian angel? The biblical answer is no. You know what the Bible says in Psalms? It says, the angel of the Lord encamps about those who what? Fear him. Not everyone has a guardian angel. It's those who belong to the Lord. It's those who are God's property. It's those who they have been given the right to be called sons and daughters of God. John 1, 12. Amen. So, whether you realize it or not, angels are active in your life. Whether you see it or not, Angels are performing God's will in your life. They are keeping you from potential dangers. Often they're keeping you out of harm's way. Often, I believe, they'll minister strength to you and help to you. Often they will be part of answering prayers as they were with Daniel. But listen, we are not to look to angels. Do you know why? Because as thrilling of an idea that it is, that God is dispatching angels to accomplish his will in our life, as thrilling as that is, don't get infatuated with that. You know why? Because do you know who resides within you? The Holy Spirit. Oh, let's don't ever be offensive to the Holy Spirit by overlooking his guidance, his anointing, his help, his comfort, his teachings. Let's don't ever overlook the essential Holy Spirit by asking for an angel. Can we say amen to that today? So we do not worship angels as is taught in Scripture. John could not worship. And, and, and by the way, you know there are many instances in the Old Testament where Scholars believe that an angel, what Scripture termed an angel of the Lord, was the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know how you can tell when it is the Lord Jesus Christ in particular? Take, for example, Joshua at Jericho in Joshua 5. When Joshua encounters the captain of the Lord of hosts, what the Bible terms as an angel, do you remember what happened? 
He said, take off your shoes and worship here on holy ground. An angel would have never done that. An ordinary angel. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. An angel will never be worshipped. The only other angel that ever tried to be worshipped was Lucifer, and that got him in a world of trouble. (laughs) So let's go today to Luke chapter 1. We're going to encounter this angel named Gabriel. Now, it's fascinating. How many angels did God create? Well, we don't know because Job 25 says they are innumerable. In Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 12, says that they are innumerable. And then John uses a fascinating term. I believe in Revelation 5, he uses a fascinating term and he calls them Myriad upon myriad. And what, was, what is that? In the Greek, myriad is the highest numerical value. And in, in, the, in, the, in, in ancient days, that highest numerical ver- value was 10,000. And what John is saying, it's an idiom, that what he's saying is there are myriads upon myriads, Tens of thousands upon tens of thousands. In other words, it's an idiom of what he's trying to say is they're innumerable. You can't calculate them. That's how many angels there are. So in Luke chapter 1, we are introduced to a man named Zechariah. And what a fascinating man he is. In verses 1, 2, and 3, and 4... Luke is going to set up his gospel. The book is actually written as well as Acts. It's written to a man named Theophilus. Now, what's interesting is scholars are not quite sure who Theophilus was. We don't know if he was a man who was seeking to know the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know if he was a man who perhaps he was new to the faith and he was being discipled. Luke makes it clear in the first few verses that he's writing to Theophilus to help him gain surety and assurance, certainty of who Jesus is. We don't know if Theophilus perhaps was a title. It could have been an honorary title. He could have been a man of great nobility. We don't know. But nonetheless, whoever Theophilus was, both the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts were addressed to him. Now, Luke is going to do something for us that I think is interesting. He's going to say in verse number five, when he introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he's first going to remind us that these are in the days of King Herod. If you remember, King Herod is the one who called for all the children, all the boys in Israel, three years old and under, that would have been in the vicinity of Jesus for them all to be killed. King Herod was a wicked, wicked man. And do you know what I think that Dr. Luke is doing for us? Why would he say that in the days of King Herod, in the hill country, was Zechariah? You know what I think he is setting up for us? I think he's saying that King Herod had all the notoriety. King Herod had all the popularity. Everyone knew King Herod's name. He was a household name, and he was abundantly wicked. But here is this no-name guy who Luke is going to give us a little bit of a profile. 
And if you're going to take notes, I want you to jot down the profile of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke's going to give us his profile, and he begins in verse number six. And here's what we know about Zechariah. Both he and his wife Elizabeth, we know that they were righteous and they were blameless before God. I think what Luke is saying is here is the man with all the notoriety and all the wealth and all the fame and all of the honor, and he's a wicked man. And here's Zechariah, a nobody, an average Joe, who no one knew his name, who's from the hill country. But you know what God knew about him? Here is the wicked King Herod, but here's what God says about Zechariah. He was a righteous man. Friends, do you know what that says to me? Is that God knows our lives. Let me tell you, when God looks at me, I don't care if after I pass from this world, if anyone ever knows my name or anything I did or anything that was ever accomplished, you know what I want? I want God to say he was righteous. And you know, no one can say that about you except God himself. Someone can have self-righteousness. Someone can have fake righteousness. Someone can have religion and all the bells and whistles. But let me tell you, God himself knows whether you are a righteous person or not. And isn't it comforting that God really knows our lives? Even if you're just someone who's from the hill country, God knows you and he sees your life. They were not only righteous, but both he and his wife, Elizabeth, they were blameless before God. Then in verse 7, it's going to tell us a little more. The Bible says that they were advanced in years. And the Bible, now listen, when the Bible says advanced in years, scholars believe that is a threshold in age. And it means that they were 80 years old plus. So this gives us a little snippet into Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were advanced in years, and now here is the most important thing. They were righteous before God. They were blameless. They were of old age. But listen, they had never had children. Now, in our culture today, a couple may choose not to have children. But in these days, in this culture... Society looked down on people who couldn't have children. It was, viewed, it was viewed as they had done something against God. God was in some way judging them. And isn't it interesting that Luke goes to the trouble to say, listen, society may say they were barren. Society may say God was judging them. But no, no, no. Here's the truth of the matter. They were righteous and they were blameless before God. Isn't that fascinating? You know what that means? People can have the wrong view of you, but who cares? People can think whatever they want to think about you, but let me tell you, when all the dust settles, the only thing that matters is what does God say and what does God think? That's why David said in Psalm 139, precious to me, oh God, are your thoughts. I don't care what people think about me. I care what does God say. What does God think? Amen. Now, not only were they righteous, not only were they blameless, not only were they advanced in years, and not only were they childless, but they were of the priestly order. 
Now, in these days, there were thousands of priests in Israel. And according to Chronicles, priests were divided into 24 divisions. And what was interesting about priests in these days, when they had the honor of going to the temple to serve, they, their division, as it says in verse 8, it came his division, it was his duty, his time of service. They served for two weeks out of the year in the temple. So this would have been a time that he would have packed his suitcase and left Elizabeth for a two-week period to travel to Jerusalem and to serve, to have the honor, the high honor of serving in the temple. Now you get to verse 9. Not only is he there to serve his two-week rotation for the year, but what they did in those days is they cast lots. In other words, they... It would be our equivalent to drawing straws. Now, why did they do this? This was common practice in these days in Israel. Matter of fact, when Judas committed suicide and the disciples replaced him in Acts chapter 1 with Matthias, how did they choose him? Before the day of Pentecost and before the infilling of the Holy Spirit and before that day of Pentecost happened, they cast lots. Now, why do we not do that today? And we don't do that, not in our church. When we decided to make Brett Tucker a pastor or Jared Wilson a pastor, when we decided to make uh, Daniel a deacon, we didn't draw straws. (laughs) Why do we not do that? Because today we have the leading of the Holy Spirit within us. Our decisions are guided by the Holy Spirit. We don't just draw straws or cast lots or however you want to say it. But in these days, that's what they did. And they cast lots and he had the distinct honor. He had the privilege, the high privilege of serving in the temple to burn incense. Now, only the high priest could enter one time a year into the Holy of Holies to atone for sin. And do you know how serious of a matter it was for the high priest to enter into the Holy of Holies where the very Shekinah presence of God resided? Do you know know what they would do? Only one man, only once a year, they would put bells on the bottom of his robe and they would listen. And if the bell stopped, you know what that meant? He wasn't right with God and he fell dead. Now who's going to go get him? (laughs) Who wants to volunteer for that role? So you know what they would do? Not only would they have bells on the bottom of his robe to listen, they would tie a rope around his ankle. And if he fell dead, they pulled him out. That's how serious of a thing the presence of God was. What if we treated the presence of God so serious in our lives? You know what happens to us? We become so familiar with God, we no longer have the right fear and the right reverence for the Lord in our day to day. Amen. So, Zechariah verse 9 has this high honor of going into the temple and serving and burning incense. Verse 10, the people are waiting on him. (laughs) Again, they know what a serious thing it is to be in this temple. And they're making their prayers. This is probably around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And 
the people are gathered and it's prayer time and they're waiting on Zechariah to come out. But God's going to have a message to give him. And look, look at it with me. Verse 11. Now, this is fascinating. An angel appeared. I love that. An angel appeared to Zechariah as he was serving the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? In verse 12, I don't know what you think your reaction of an angel would be. I don't know what you think you would do if an angel, if you literally had an encounter with an angel. But I tell you what happened most of the time in the Bible. Fear. (laughs) Fear. Look what it says, verse 12. He was troubled and fear fell upon him. And you know what? Seven times in the book of Luke, it's going to say fear not. And 23 times he's going to talk about angels. Oh, they're all throughout the Bible. And Gabriel appears before Zechariah and says, fear not. God has sent me. Oh, I love that. I believe that's verse 13. God has, or, or, <clears throat> God has sent me. Verses, I believe, uh, 13, 13 through 17. Why do I love that phrase, God has sent me? Because what did we read earlier? Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent from God? That echoes Hebrews 1.14. You know, out of the myriad upon myriad of angels, upon the innumerable, incalculable angels, do you know the Bible only records two actual names? It records Michael, who is the archangel. We see him warring in the Bible. We see him in the book of Daniel. We see him in the book of Revelation. And then, of course, who we're going to meet today, Gabriel. And what is Gabriel's role as it would seem in Scripture? He is the angel that makes the announcements of God. And he's going to give Zechariah an unbelievable announcement. He's going to say, Zechariah, you're going to have a time of gladness, a time of rejoicing. By the way, the word rejoicing is recorded 19 times in the Gospel of Luke. It's a joyful book. And he's going to say... God is going to give you a son in your advanced years. And he's going to be a mighty prophet. He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. And he's going to turn men's hearts back to God. He's going to save Israel. And he's telling him all these amazing things from verses 13 down to 17. And when you get down to verse 18, the unbelievable happens. Now you have to understand... Zechariah has the honor of his life to serve this capacity before the Lord. And God visits him with not just any angel. I'm talking the angel that helped Daniel. I'm talking the angel that he would have been familiar with based on the Old Testament scriptures. This is a big deal. And you know what Zechariah says? How do I know? You're talking about offensive. How do you know? Zachariah, an angel has appeared to you. 
the angel Gabriel, no less. The one that of all innumerable angels, he's one of two that we know his name. And Zachariah is not going to believe? Friends, do you know, listen today. Say amen if you're with me right now. Because this is the key principle to the whole day. Society looked down on Zechariah and Elizabeth. Society said they are childless and therefore they must have done something wrong against God. But in the reality, Luke tells us they were righteous people and they were blameless before God. Friends, these people were right with God. They were godly, righteous. They were a godly, righteous couple. But when we come to verse 18... Let me tell you what this teaches me. And let me tell you what I want to show you in the text today. I believe that it is very possible to love God, to be right before him, to be a godly person, and yet unbelief be undetected in our lives. It is possible to read the word. It's possible to come to church every single week. It's possible to have a vibrant prayer life. It's possible to be in right standing with God, to be born again, to have your sins forgiven, and yet unbelief be found in your heart. It was true for Zechariah. Do you know what I think happened to Zechariah? I've, I've thought a world about this. And see, I've read a lot of commentaries on this. I've, I've followed some scholars who, who and this is what all of them say. They say, well, all Zechariah would have had to have done is look to Abraham and Sarah and say, well, if God did it for them, he could do it for me. But see, that, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think Zechariah could just look to Abraham. Do you know why? I think Zechariah, I think if you would have asked him in the moment, he would have said, well, <laughs> You're talking about Abraham. No, I'm talking about me. I'm no Abraham. Do do you not know where I'm from? I'm from the hill country. I'm nobody. And see, I think Luke is so deliberate and I think he's so intentional to say, here's King Herod, but here's nobody, Zechariah. And when the Bible announces to Zechariah this mighty miracle by this angel, Zechariah in his heart is saying, no. No, I don't. I think you got the wrong guy. Do you know why I think this? Listen, you should write this down. The word Elizabeth here in the text means God is my oath. The word Zechariah in this text means Jehovah remembers. You know what I think happened to Zechariah? While he was righteous and while he was blameless and while he was a priest and while he checked every box right. I think through the years, I think he grew in despair. I think even though he was a righteous man, I think in his heart of hearts, he stopped praying for a child. I think his attitude was, if God were going to remember me, because what's his name mean? Jehovah remembers. I don't want to read too much into the text, but I tell you how I feel. I feel like his very name pained his heart. And I feel like Zechariah, because he wouldn't believe, 
the word of God because he wouldn't believe the angel of God because he had doubt in his heart. I think through the years that doubt grew. And I think Zacharias said, had God remembered me, he would have done it in my 30s. If God had remembered me, it would have been in my 40s or my 50s or my 60s, maybe even my 70s, but not now. (laughs) No, you can't tell me that God's remembered me. Here's the whole point of the day. If you and I are not careful, we'll be born again. We'll be righteous with God. We'll check off all the boxes But at the end of the day, life's disappointments will breed doubt and unbelief. And see, here's my point today. Scholars go, well, you should have looked at Abraham. But see, he's just Zechariah. He's no Abraham. He's from the hill country, for crying out loud. He's from the boondocks. He's nobody. And you know what I think happens in our life? The same trap. Who am I? Who am I that God would hear me? Who am I that God would do a miracle? Who am I that God's paying any attention? You know what Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1? It's absolutely fascinating. If, If I were to say, is your faith equal to that of Peter's? How many of us would go, uh, No. What about the great apostle John? Is your faith equal to... No. What about Paul? Are you kidding me, Chad? But yet, do you know what Peter wrote? Look look at it. It's 2 Peter chapter 1. I can't remember if it's verses 1, 2, or 3. Let's say it's between verses 1 and 3. You can fact check me. A blind pastor can't. I got a lot locked up in the vault, but sometimes it get, the combination gets a little wonky. It's 2 Peter 1, first few verses. Peter says that we have, did we find it? What verse is it? Somebody found it, I guarantee it. No? Is it verse 1? It says that we Have a faith, listen to this, of equal standing to that of the apostles. Now, Peter doesn't say your faith is of equal standing because of your good works or because of your good intentions or because of your knowledge of Scripture or because of this or that. Why is our faith of equal standing to the apostles? He tells us because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, say amen if you're with me. Because here's my point. Unbelief should never be accepted in our lives. See, like Zechariah, we could say, well, I'm no Abraham. Well, I'm a nobody. I'm from nowhere. I'm not all that important. And if you're not careful, let me tell you what you'll do. You'll allow unbelief to remain in your life. And let me tell you, for a child of God, it ought to be unacceptable. When the Holy Spirit shines the light on unbelief, let me tell you, we are to resist it. We are to fight it. We are to rebuke it. We are to get it out of our life as soon as as we can.
But no, what's the temptation? The temptation is to say, but who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just average. I'm below average. Why does it matter? Friends, God does not accept unbelief. And if God would not accept it in his mighty apostles, God doesn't accept it in our lives. Us who have equal standing, equal faith to theirs. Am I making any sense today? Is there unbelief in your life? Is there doubt in your heart? The book of James verse 1 says that a man who doubts in his heart should not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because God will not honor doubt. So here Zechariah is, verse number 18. He says, well, how will I know this is true? And Gabriel, oh my, was not the reaction Gabriel wanted. And he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. <laughs> well, what, what an irony. Here Zechariah is standing in the holy place, burning incense. You know, what, you know what Gabriel's saying? You think you're something because you're... No, I stand in the presence of God. And because you wouldn't believe my word, you'll be mute. <laughs> and God struck the man with muteness. He comes out of the temple unable to speak. Everyone knew he had seen a vision. Something big had happened, and he could not say a word. You know what? God was not going to let him speak against the miracle that was going to take place in his life. Zechariah finishes out his two-week duty. That must have been a long two weeks. Can you imagine? He, can you imagine every time he went to burn incense, he thought, oh, man, Gabriel's going to come back. He's going to wear me out. And here he is, he can't say a word. And after that two weeks, he goes home, back to the hill country, back to Elizabeth. He gets on Amazon and orders what to expect when expecting. and <laughs> Opens a registry at Target of the hill country. And <sighs> What I want to know is how did he communicate to Elizabeth that we're going to have a baby? He must have been smooth because he couldn't communicate, but they ended up having a baby. So I don't know how he did that, but it was good, whatever he did. Because the Bible says, the Bible says, verses 21 to 25, then Elizabeth conceived. <laughs> Forget being a smooth talker. He was just smooth all the way around. And so must have had good music or something. I don't know. And so, so you drop down the verse 57. And nine months go by. <laughs> nine months have passed. And sure enough, the first Baptist is born. John the Baptist. I'm kidding. You know that's not what that means, but... John the Baptist is born. What a proud father. What a mighty miracle. What a great thing the Lord did. 
And then you know what happened in verse 64? They go to circumcise him on the eighth day, and it was at the time of circumcision that you gave him his official name. Well, in those days, you named based on your family lineage. And they look at Elizabeth, and they say, okay, what's his name? And she goes, John. And they go, what? There's no John in your family lineage. So they're like, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She look, they look to dad, and they say, well, what's his name? Well, guess what? He can't speak. And you can read it. Verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet. I would have loved to have seen a writing tablet in those days. What do you think it looked like? And I wonder if it was called iStone. I mean, it had to have been slick, right? And he takes this writing tablet and he writes, his name shall be John. And bam, obedience comes into his heart. And what happens? His mouth opens and his tongue loosens. And you know what comes out of that man? (laughs) Out of nine months of chastisement, out of nine months of discipline, you know what comes out of his mouth? Nothing but praise to God. The man goes praising God and prophesying. You know what the principle is, my friend? There may be doubt in your life today. And quite frankly, you may be in a season of chastisement. You may be in a place where the Lord is disciplining you right now. (laughs) Hebrew says, the Lord chastens those whom he loves. The Lord disciplines sons and daughters. Don't despise that. But see, here's the principle. God's chastening doesn't last forever. Amen. Here's the point of today. There's angelic activity going on all around you. Whether you see it or you don't. But see, here's the real point. Don't allow unbelief in your life. The moment you detect unbelief, the moment the Holy Spirit reveals unbelief, attack it with all that you have. Friends, the Bible teaches us that there's not but one way to please the Lord. Did you know that? It takes faith to please the Lord. And you know what the opposite of faith is? Unbelief. Why could Jesus not minister in his hometown? Because of unbelief. Don't let unbelief in your life. Don't let it hold place in your heart. Unbelief doesn't mean you understand everything. Unbelief doesn't mean you shrug your shoulders and say, well, I don't care. Unbelief doesn't mean that you have the answers to everything. But what faith is, faith is when you say, no matter what I see or what I don't see, God is who he says he is. And God will do what he says he will do. So I may not have every answer. I may not have the solution. I may not be able to tell you why. I may not be able to tell you how. But see, what I can tell you is that's really none of my business. All I can tell you is God is faithful. God, give us the gift of faith. 
with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. You know, when Jesus was on the earth, many times in the gospels, and we'll encounter it in our study of Mark next year. Many times Jesus marveled at people's faith or he marveled at their lack of faith. You know, Jesus was never impressed, not once is it ever recorded that Jesus was impressed with a title or an honorary name or a position. Jesus was never impressed with strength or ability or talent. You know what the only thing that impressed Jesus on this earth was? Faith. And you know what the Bible says he's looking for, Luke 18, when Jesus returns? He's looking for people of faith.